0: All right, good morning, everybody. Good morning. 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 TLH 260, the old red hymnal 260, stanzas 1, 2, and 6.
1: Oh Lord, look down from heaven, behold and let thy pity waken how few are we within thy fold thy saints by men forsaken true faith seems quenched on every hand Men suffer not thy word to stand. Dark times have us o'ertaken. With fraud which they themselves invent, thy truth they have confounded their hearts are not with one consent on thy pure doctrine grounded while they parade with outward show they lead the people to and fro in error's maze astounded. Defend thy truth, O God, and stay this evil generation. And from the error of its way Keep thine own congregation. The wicked everywhere abound. And would thy little flock confound. But thou art our salvation. Let us pray.
0: Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Almighty and gracious Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on your faithful people. Keep us steadfast in your grace and truth. Protect and deliver us in times of temptation. Defend us against all enemies. And grant to your Church your saving peace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, let's take a look at the verse from the congregation at prayer. By the way, the bulletins back there look different because, of course, today's Reformation, it's divine service setting five and not setting three, which is the sort of modernized version of Luther's Deutsche Mass, which is the, the hymn mass. Um, so that's why it looks different. We do that once a year. We do save those, though, so if you were tempted to take notes in it or write in the bulletin part of it, please don't do that. And then make sure you give those back at the end of the service so we can use them again next year. Whoops, wrong color. All right, Psalm so 121.7, let's speak this together. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. Why is Lord in all caps? Pardon me? Because he's the Lord. Okay, because he's the Lord. But sometimes it's in all caps and sometimes it's just a capital L in lowercase letters. Why? why? Do you know? Ah, sort of. There is a particular emphasis. So here's something you lose in translation, okay? From the Hebrew, there are two words for Lord. The first is Elohim. And Elohim is a cool word because Im at the end of the word is only for plurals. So it's the plural Lord that is translated in the singular because they're confessing the Trinity. But when Elohim is used, it's just capital L, lowercase o-r-d. But the other one is... Yahweh. We spell it with four letters because uh, in the Hebrew... Uh, there, are only, there are no vowels in the Hebrew language, it's just consonants. So in the Hebrew language, this is what it is, Yahweh. It's called the Tetragrammaton, the four letters, which is the name of God. And uh, if you read Jewish literature, they will never write this and they will never speak it because the Lord's name is so holy, you do not put it on your unholy tongue, which is kind of cool although the Lord has given us his name to call upon. Now, uh, Jehovah is maybe something you've heard before. Jehovah is not actually in the Bible, and it's not a name for God. It is Yahweh, but they they try to guess what the vowels would be, and instead of just saying Yahweh from the Hebrew, they put in vowels. And in order to get Jehovah, you have to break the rules of the Hebrew language to make it work. So Jehovah is not the name of the Lord, Yahweh is the name of the Lord, but in English, how do we translate that? Lord with capital letters to show you that this is the divine name, but what is the divine name? I am. am. Four letters in Hebrew, three letters in English. I am. That's really important for this psalm. So, the Lord, that is, I am, that is, Yahweh, shall preserve you. Why? Why is he going to preserve you? Well, because I am. Nothing else is going to preserve you because apart from God, what is everything else? Nothing. There isn't anything but him. So, I am is good, he is only. And therefore, this is not only promise, but it is a declaration of fact. He alone will preserve you, but he'll also do it why? Because who is you? Who is you?
2: Everyone.
0: Mm? Not everyone yes believers but can you think of a better word here than than believer what are you as a believer a child of god, child of god. going to preserve you that is god's children so he's going to preserve you the children and the reason why he does that is not only because he is good and not only because he's the only one who can, it's because he loves his children, which is a great comfort to you. And he's gonna preserve you from what? All evil. Well, what is evil? Sin. Sin, uh, yeah, okay, sin is evil. But what is evil?
2: stop yeah, well, uh, separated from...
0: Okay, yes, yes, yes. This is a very difficult question, actually, so it's unfair of me to ask it, but you're all very smart people, and I like to hear the answers that you give me, which are all good answers. But here's the deeply theological answer. Evil is, at its core, the absence of good. Well, there you go, you and Einstein. You know, this is, this is really famous because Einstein, Albert Einstein, you know, he was, he was Jewish. He purportedly got into an argument with one of his teachers in school because his teacher was telling him that it's dumb, it's dumb to believe in God and only an idiot believes in God. And the reason why is because you think that there is a God and you think that he is good. But if he is so good, then look around and look at all the evil. And God had to make evil. And if he made evil because he made all things, then he is not good. And Einstein said, he, as, a, as a child, he said, well, that doesn't make any sense, teacher, because uh, cold is the absence of warmth. Darkness is the absence of light. It just means that that isn't there. And evil is the absence of good. Good doesn't create evil. Evil is the absence of good. Evil is what you get when you run away from God. Like darkness is what you get when you turn off the light or when you put a blindfold on. Or cold is what you get when you open the front door and you run outside away from where it is warm. That's what evil is at its core, which is why sin is evil. Because what is sin at its core? Rebellion against God. That's why repentance is doing an about face. Because repentance is turning your back on sin and returning to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful. It's all coming back home. Going back to the hearth where there's light and warmth and all that is good because God is there and God is good. But if you leave God and you go out the front door and you want to you be that 18-year-old kid who says, yeah, I'm finally 18. I can move out. See you later, Dad you're going to come to a very harsh reality, and that is the world is a dark, cruel, cold place. And if you're smart, you want to put your tail back between your legs and come home to daddy. That is what evil is, and the Lord will preserve you. And how will the Lord do this? Here's, I'm not going to write all this down, but I'm going to use very specific language. You know, this theme of going home, having it be homey. He's gonna build walls. Where does the Lord build walls? In baptism. He's going to give you strength to persevere. Hey, where does that happen? At the Lord's table, at his altar with his Eucharist. He's going to undo all of your wrongs so that there's no reason for you to have to go out. Where does he undo your wrongs? Confession and absolution. Absolution isn't just a washing, it's an undoing. And he's going to chase after you when you leave. So when you, the belligerent 18-year-old, decides you're going to move out only because you can, he's not going to say, fine, good riddance. He's going to open the door and he's going to follow you out and he's going to chase you. There's There's a children's book, I think it's called The Runaway Bunny or something like that. I love that book. I remember that book from when I was a kid. But the whole point of that book is the baby bunny that says, I'm going to run away from you, mom. I'm going to go somewhere else. And the mom says, oh, that's impossible. You can never get away from me. And the baby says, Oh, yes, I can. I'm going to go run away to the garden at the end of the world. And she said, Oh, well, you can't run away from me and go there because if you're there, then I'm the gardener that's tending the garden and I'll just be there. And she said, Well, I'm going to go on a ship and sail out into the middle of the ocean. And the mom says, Oh, well, that's not really going to work either because if you're out in a ship on the ocean, I'm the wind that's blowing the sails. And then you're not away from me, are you? And it's just the whole story is the kid saying, well, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna get away from you this way. And the mom's saying, oh, that doesn't really work. If you're there, I'm there. If you're here, I'm here. And the baby says, well, all right. I guess I'll just stay here with you then, huh? And it's great. It's a great story, beautiful illustrations, but there is something theological to that because that's the way God is. Except for God isn't figurative. If you're really gonna want run away from God, you're gonna find God everywhere. You know, you try to get away from God and to tune him out, he's gonna get louder. He's like he's like the irritating son or husband that you can't possibly ignore even if you tried, not speaking from personal experience. (laughs) And what else will he do? He shall preserve your soul, he shall keep it safe. Keep safe, keep well. Okay, let's speak this again. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. What is the third petition of the Lord's Prayer? I will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does this mean? The good and gracious will of God is done even without our prayer. But we pray in this petition... That it may be done us also. So you're not praying that God's will would be done as if God has to sit up in heaven and wait for His will to be allowed to happen. The will of God is going to it's going to work. In fact, the reason that you are even alive, and the reason why you have food on the table and a roof over your head and clothes on your back and a car to get you here today in the first place, is because God, because God's will is being done apart from you and in spite of you. So that's not the point of praying, thy will be done. Of course it's going to be done. But it's about, it's about us and about our disposition towards the Lord's will. In some sense, it's sort of like the explanation for the sixth petition, give us this day our daily bread, that God would give Daily bread to even evil people, but that he would lead us to remember this, that is how he works, and to give thanks for it. Well, it's kind of the same thing here, that he would lead us to remember that his will is going to be done and allow that we give thanks for his will and that his will would be done among us, which is to say that we ourselves would be conformed to God's will, that we wouldn't fight it. But that we would just say, Amen. Okay, you're the boss, Dad. Whatever you say, that's how it's going to be. This is the way you want it. Okay, that's fine. This is how you want me to live? Great. Then your will be done. I'll live the way you want, not the way I want. That that you you are conformed to God's will. And that through the God's Spirit, um, that you would incarnate his will, that is, put flesh on his will, what does God's will look like? Well, first it looks like Jesus, but second it looks like you, at least that's the hope and prayer of God. That's his desire, that his will look like you, that you incarnate his will in how you live your life, in what you say, in what you do, in the decisions that you you make, in how you act, uh, in the way that you love God and love your neighbor. Okay, kids, you can go to Sunday school. Adults do you have any Saoirse. Do you have any questions about the verse or the catechism? Okay. Okay. Had a really good question this week from One of you, dear souls, who was paying attention in Bible class and who asked, how do you honor your mother and your father if your mother or your father or both are unlovable people? How do you you honor them if they're, say, abusive or vitriolic people? which is a great question. And the basic answer is, I'm gonna just tell you all, because I think, it, I think the question is so good and so important. Firstly, you live a life of forgiveness in the mercy of Jesus. And forgiveness doesn't mean that you say, I forgive you, and then keep doing whatever it is that you're doing or keep treating another individual the same way you were treating them before and that the only thing that has changed is that, well, I told them I forgave them. Forgiveness is living as if you had forgotten. Living as if you had forgotten, not letting any of the things that trouble you be the thing that determines your relationship or how you interact with that person. That's what forgiveness is. And when you look at it that way, all of a sudden, Jesus' demand to forgive your enemies becomes a lot more difficult. How is the best way to forgive? Where does it all begin? At the cross. Yeah, at the cross. And it flows forth into your own life. Jesus is crucified for you. What do you crucify in yourself? Yeah, be confident, that was right. Pride. You crucify your pride. What is the thing that stops you from living a life of forgiveness? Even, listen, and I'm not saying people don't deserve justice or deserve punishment. And, you know, certainly people who are abusive, will, they will reap what they sow. And forgiveness doesn't mean that you turn around and make them your best friend in the world. It just means that you're not going to let the slights be the thing that define your relationship. The things that govern you, the, the demons that ride you like little jockeys and steer you and tell you where to go and what to say and what to do. And the place that it starts is with your pride, because your pride is gonna be the thing that says, I couldn't possibly, don't you remember what that guy did to me? Don't you remember that person that I trusted and how they backstabbed me? How could I ever talk to them again? I can't even stand to look at them. And Jesus takes you into his breast and pats you on the head and gives you a hug and a kiss on the forehead, and then he whispers very gently into your ear, get over yourself. Okay, so that's where it begins. Now, one of the things in the large catechism, there is a new handout, by the way. The handout that's out there looks the same, but it's not the same, it's a different one. It's part two, okay, if you didn't get it. In part one, one of the things That was mentioned there uh, in in one of the quotes from the passages was that you um, you children are called to honor your mother and your father, which means you don't speak harshly to them, you don't uh, speak back in anger, you don't let your temper rule, you do everything with love and with respect even when or if your parents go too far. That's the direct quote, even should they go too far. You still treat them with love and with respect. It doesn't mean you have to call them every day. It doesn't mean you have to go out and get brunch every Sunday, but you treat them with love and with respect, which is a very difficult thing to do. Uh, One of the examples that I used when I was talking to... uh, the person who asked the question was, I brought up the example of Corrie Ten Boom. Do any of you know about Corrie Ten Boom? Okay, good for you who know. That's not a shame on you to anyone who doesn't know about Corrie Ten Boom, but she was in a concentration camp and uh, was tortured. Her sister died in the concentration camp and then she would, later, um, she survived, but later she would give talks about the love of God and about forgiveness. And at one of her talks, uh, a gentleman stood up and said, I thought you looked familiar. So I came to hear your talk, and I heard what you said about being in the concentration camp, and then I knew I knew you because I was the guard that tortured you, and I'm the guard that killed your sister and then said, would you please forgive me? I did a great wickedness to you. Would you forgive me? And she did. But she said, I believe somewhere in her book where she talks about that, she says, that's one of the hardest things I've done. It's easy to talk about forgiveness, but then all of a sudden you're actually faced with the reality, you look face to face with the person that murdered your sister, that tortured and abused you, and the Lord says, forgive them. Think of Stephen the martyr, who is being stoned to death, not a fun way to die, and as the stones are hitting him and breaking his body, his last words are, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And of course, he gets that from where? Stephen's a bit, yeah, from the cross, Stephen's a little bit of a plagiarist. Uh, but here's the thing about the church, okay? There's no such thing as plagiarism in the church. You don't, there's no such thing as plagiarizing Jesus. There's no such thing as plagiarizing an apostle. Gee whiz, can you believe if we had to pay royalties every time we pl- prayed the Lord's Prayer? Who? Who <laughs> nobody would ever pray it, Okay. This is why, by the way, this is a pet peeve of mine, copyright in the church, I think copyright in, in the church and when copyright started be, being enforced in the church, that's when the church started dying in America. I don't think that's the only thing that started killing the church, but I do think that's one of the things. Back in the 60s when we started licensing everything, even the 50s, I think, 50s and 60s when we licensed hymns and then we said every time, if you, if you ever want to sing this hymn, you have to pay for a license to sing the hymn. And my response to that is, well, great. I can't wait to, wait to be in prison and not being allowed to sing any of the hymns of the church because they're all copyrighted. Okay. Well, shoot. Can't pray the Psalms because the Bible's copyrighted. Can't sing the hymns because the hymns are copyrighted. What happened to the church? You know. So COVID was actually good in that sense because CPH had a copyright uh, clause that was so strict that you weren't allowed to record anything that was copyrighted even from the hymnal including the liturgy because guess what divine service setting three now that's copyright <laughs> so you can't do any of that stuff you couldn't put it on a podcast you couldn't put it on a cd to take to your shut-ins you couldn't do anything without express approval and paying for a license And that included live streaming. You weren't allowed to live stream if anything that you had on the live stream was copyrighted. And then COVID came along and everybody basically told CPH, I'm gonna live stream my services and if you wanna sue my church, you come and get me. And CPH said, hmm, maybe we should look at this again. And they changed it. So now you can put that stuff up for 30 days. So, look at that, you know. uh, But, yes?
2: How about plagiarizing a sermon?
0: There's no such thing as plagiarizing a sermon. If you're you're a pastor worth your salt, you you won't use somebody else's sermon. But also, if you're a pastor who's worth his salt, you listen to sermons, and you are influenced by other people's sermons. And if you're... If you are really, really worth your salt and you really care about your integrity, you, if, if a sermon that you write and preach is heavily influenced by any particular source, you will put a little note in that many of these ideas are drawn from blah, blah, blah. Now, no one in the congregation, you're never going to see that. But I see it and I have to preach from the manuscript, and I care about my integrity, at least. I can only speak for myself. So if, I'm, if I read something from Johann Gerhard, or from Luther, one of Luther's sermons, or from Chemnitz, or from Pope Benedict, or you know a lot of those people that I read a lot of, uh, and something just really hits me, and I say, that's a great idea, I'm gonna make that idea into my sermon, then I'll put a little footnote right at the beginning of the sermon. Many of the ideas, or the, 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 the theological positions were drawn in large part from and then cite the work. Okay. But technically there's no, there's no plagiarizing a sermon because sermons are given to the whole church. So like uh, uh, Easter Vigil, what's the sermon every Easter Vigil? I didn't write it. It's St. John Chrysostom's Easter homily. The church has a long tradition of using that for Easter Vigil because the church has said, boy, this is probably the greatest Easter sermon that could ever have been written, so why would we bother even trying to write something else and trying to compete? Why wouldn't we just use the very best one? So we do. So we just use that one. But even when you look in the service folder for Easter Vigil, it says St. John Chrysostom's homily for Easter Vigil. So I'll preach the exact same sermon that Chrysostom preached in the 4th century, but I will say that he's the one that wrote it. I didn't write it. Okay, hey, Rhonda? Yes, um, when we were in high school, uh, Marvel might remember this. But we heard uh, her attendance. Oh. She was, I think that's what it was, an FHA convention or FHA meeting we had We had a speaker, and I think it was her. Hmm. Do you remember Marvel? When did she pass away? From home? Oh, I don't know. I don't know that. We heard,
2: I, we heard some, someone spoke about the Holocaust at one of our FHA meetings. And I was either junior or senior. I cannot remember. I just said that I
0: remember, I remember it wound up on the stage. Yeah. And I remember it affected, well, affected both of us. Yeah. Um, Corey Tenboom stands in stark contrast, in my opinion, to a, a Jewish philosopher named Simon Wiesenthal. Um, I don't know if you know the name Simon Wiesenthal or not. I remember reading Simon Wiesenthal in a horrible, horrible, horrible philosophy class I was required to take in college that was taught by a a, uh, hardcore left-wing atheist Jew lesbian. What's
1: that?
0: Listen, I didn't go to a Concordia, okay? I went to to pagan UW. Simon
2: Wiesenthal. He the guy
0: that tracked down Nazis. He did he did stuff with Nazis. Yeah, he, he was I believe.
2: The, the I don't. Big yeah. The, the,
0: the, I don't know. I don't know all the details about him, but yeah. I remember reading his book, where he talks about meeting up with. He was at a hospital, and there was a Nazi soldier that was in the hospital, who. Was praying to God for mercy for what he had done and asked Simon Wiesenthal, Will you please forgive me? And he said, No. So Corey Tenboom stands in stark contrast to that attitude because Corey Tenboom says, I will. Do you want to? You never want to forgive people, especially the abusive people. You want to hold it against them and they cause harm, they cause deep hurt to you. And that hurt never goes away, it's always there, you bear it as scars. Um, That kind of abuse is always there, just like physical abuse would be. So how do you honor them? Well, you love them the way the Lord loves them. You pray for them, you pray for mercy to them, you pray for repentance to them. You listen to them when they talk, you don't lash out In anger or in rage. Again, I'm not, yeah, just a minute. Again, I'm not saying you have to call them every single day and say, hey, how are you? Hope you're having a great day. But you still pray for them. And when you do interact with them, you do it charitably. And especially if it's a mother or a father, say they have to go into hospice care. And none of your, this is just, an example and say none of your, all of your siblings who are outside the church say, well, F him. He was just a real SOB. Serves him right that he's gonna die. Send him out to the middle of nowhere and send somebody else to take care of him. You say, he might have been an SOB, and in fact he probably was, but he is still my father and I still owe this much at least to him because I love the Lord, that I go and I take care of him and make sure that he's taken care of even to the end of his life. Just as an example, okay? Um, There's no one-size-fits-all approach to dealing with abusive parents. This is all about parents. No one-size-fits-all to dealing with abusive parents, however, one thing does stay consistent and that is uh, love them as the Lord and offer them forgiveness, and that will mold your interactions with them, and that is how you honor even an abusive mother or father. Yes?
2: Put that in in today's uh, news. There are people now calling for Israel, the Jews, to not seek revenge back on the Hamas or the Palestinians that, that killed them. But rather, seek a peaceful reconciliation of this. And and there's a side that says no, um, they killed and they should be punished for what they did. So that, it's that's a that's a really oversimplification of what the issue is. Yes. But yet it's it's a question of whatever. I guess we still
0: seek justice. I mean, if you have an abusive father, say, an abusive father, is it okay to want him to go to prison for what he did? Yes. I mean, justice, there, there is still such a thing as justice, even when there is forgiveness. That's part of what it means to have natural law consequences. There is a law. And you, you trespass against the law, there will always be consequences. The best example of that in the whole world, I've, t- I've used this before, getting a spanking from my parents. And one of the things that my parents always did was to ask before we got spanked, why are you getting spanked? So, you know, And we said, well, because I did this. So you always knew that you deserved... <coughs> that you had earned the punishment that you were getting. And then, of course, you say, well, I'm, I'm really sorry. And this I remember, my mother saying, I forgive you. Now turn around and bend over. Okay. <laughs> me saying that I forgive you and me doing the act of forgiveness doesn't negate the fact that there are still consequences for actions. So justice is different than retribution and Natural law is different than forgiveness. They're all sort of intermingled, but they're not. There are kind of two sides to that. Now, I'm not going to talk about the Middle East. There's a lot of politics there, and I don't deal in politics. I've got tons of opinions about politics, but most of the time I will not share those with you because you don't need to know what your pastor's opinion about politics is. the, that particular instance is one of natural law consequences, I think. I mean, imagine if Pearl Harbor happened again today. Would we turn around and say, oh, well, we should just tell them we love them and then not do anything. I mean, you, that's one of the laws of the universe there are always consequences to an action. So um, that's about what I'll say. Yes? Well, I really love this, what you had to say, because these days it's very in to reject your parents and say your parents were abusive. Oh, that's always been in. Okay. But, th- but the, the, the way that you talk about their abuse <coughs> changes, but it's always in to reject your parents. But I, you know, I have,
1: Mm-hmm. But the the
2: great thing about the way you're presenting it is, we're not, do not There's no need to deny whether or not your parents were abusive to you. If you have this perception that they were abusive at whatever
0: degree it might be, mm-hmm. the forgiveness is still there. The forgiveness and the grace is still for. Yes. You
2: know, if you can take it to the extreme and say, we recognize that people are physically, emotionally,
1: mentally abused and still
0: you want to approach the love of God, mm-hmm. and everything else on the spectrum is covered. Sure. And this, too, doesn't mean that if you, if you happen to be somebody who is hurt by abuses of one form or another, that you don't also create um, safeguards, too. I mean, that doesn't mean that you just dive right back into the lion's den because the Lord said Forgive. There are always consequences, and one of the consequences is that you now have defenses that you built up in one way or another, and that's fine still to have those, but, but you know, that's not independent from loving and forgiving still, and not letting those things be the thing that define, and treating your parents with respect even when they go too far. And that's something that, and, and to be frank, you don't, you don't actually have to have had abusive parents to struggle with the fourth commandment. If you've made it this far and you still say, I don't have any trouble with the fourth commandment, you're a liar. And I know it. And you know it. Okay? Okay. Everybody struggles with their parents. If we didn't, there wouldn't, even be, there wouldn't be a commandment about it. <laughs> okay. Everybody struggles with their parents in one way or another. I know she listens to this, but this is still the best example I can give you. My mother and I, I love my mother. Out of all of my siblings, I am the one who calls her the most. I talk to my mother almost every single day. But my mother and I also have exactly the same personality. Egg exactly the same personality, and unfortunately that means that there's not a lot of room in close quarters for both of us to be together for extended periods of time. (laughs) I love her, I love going home to see her, I love having her here. But at one point or another, there typically is an argument about something, and you want to know the dumbest thing. None of the things that we ever argue about have any value at all. It's two people who are a little thick-headed and who like to have the last word. Just trying to have the last word. And that's just how it goes sometimes. You know, certainly I could be better about honoring my mother and just setting my pride aside and saying, fine, okay, just have the last word. It's fine. It doesn't change anything. And every parent can be better about dealing with their children in a more gracious way. The problem for parents is that your children are always your children. And even though they're grown up, There's a part of you that never, ever, 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 no matter how old they are, will see them as grown up. And sometimes that's the part that wins when you're interacting with your children. So parents, the fourth commandment applies to the parents too, and you know, it goes in two ways. And we'll talk about that a little bit, not today probably, but it's in this handout. The role of parents and how they are to behave is also a role that is exemplified by the context of the Fourth Commandment and how, how in other places, Scripture talks about what parents are to be like. So there is, a, there is a degree of sovereignty in a child that has become an adult. And there is a degree to which the parent's authority changes. You don't get to tell your grown children that they're grounded anymore. You know, Oh, well, my uncle... <laughs> my, both of my uncles on my mom's side were, you know, they're a little bit of troublemakers. And uh, they were still living at home. I think my uncle was 19, 20, something like that. He didn't own his own car. He was still borrowing my grandma's car. They, I think they had one that was their family car. So he would just use the family car and, uh, but he didn't own it, and he did something. And, I, and, you know, it was one of those, well, what are you going to do, ground me? And I believe that my grandma's response was, no, I can't ground you. You're an adult, but I can ground the car. <laughs> 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 so, you know, uh, you, have, you interact with your children differently when they become adults even though to you they are always, they never age a day beyond the day you brought them back from the hospital or the day you first took them trick-or-treating or the day they first learned how to use the big boy potty. You know They never really age beyond that. They're still your little kids. Um, but you also then don't treat them like little kids in the degree uh, that you are telling him now you go do this, now you go do that, and if you don't, you, you know, I'm going to be upset with you, and I'm going to, you just can't do that anymore. But children still are to honor their mother and their father, again, even if their mother and father go too far, however that applies to us, what go too far means. I like that it's a little subjective, because everybody has their own scale of what too far is well now it doesn't matter because whatever your scale is um, where that arrow sits at gone too far not gone too far it doesn't matter gone too far well the commandment doesn't change it's not nullified by the behavior of your parents and the parental responsibility is also not nullified by the behavior or the age of your children so my mother will be the first one to tell you that if I do something dumb, she'll still call me and tell me I was a fool to do that and that I, and, and that's fine, and that's a, that's a parent's right. I remember Rush Limbaugh making a joke about Chelsea Clinton on the radio once, and they got a caller, and it was his mother, on air, who chewed him out and said, I raised you better than that, you don't make fun of people for things they can't help, and you're, you should be ashamed of yourself, and I want you to apologize. And he was like, well, oh, okay, sorry, Mom. You know, <laughs> sometimes, no matter how old you are, you do need a little bit of a dressing down from Mom and Dad. And, and parental authority, in that sense, is a good thing. Honor your father and your mother, okay? So, we've talked about this just a little bit. This is the first point on the new handout, uh, but it goes into greater depth here in the second half of the explanation of the commandment that the terms mother and father don't only refer to mom and dad, that they refer to any authority by virtue of God's gift of parental authority because remember parental authority is the chief of authorities and all other authority flows out of the realm of parental authority. And that also means that when we talk about children it means more than just sons and daughters. It means anybody who is under authority. Now that expands the reach of the fourth commandment a great deal uh, because from from the perspective of children, it means that all of you are children in one form or another. Do you live in a state that has a governor yes then you are children because you are under authority are there laws at the federal level that you must obey yes doesn't matter if you think they're stupid laws or not they are there and that means you are subject to them and that means you're a child in the sense of authority do you have a job Where you have a boss. Well, then you are a child. This also extends, I mentioned this a while back, but this also extends to if you are in a home that is not your home, not your household, where somebody else is the head of the household. So, for example, if my parents come to visit me in my home, I am the head of my house, And that means that for the time that my parents are there, as far as authority goes, they are actually children to me. Because there are certain rules of my household, and they might be my parents by blood, but I am their parent by authority in my own home. So parents don't get to go to their children's homes and break all of the rules of the household and then play the but I'm the mom or I'm the dad card. It doesn't work that way. So you're subject to the authority of the household and that isn't your household. So even then, you are a child with respect to authority. Okay? And likewise, father and mother is anybody who holds authority. Whether you have flesh and blood children, you are still a father or a mother if you have anybody at all that would be in any way under your authority, so if you babysit your nieces and nephews, you are mother or father by virtue of authority. If you have no children, but you're the governor of the state, you have actually many children. And then you have to be a disciplinarian because many of those children under you need some spankings, let me tell you. (laughs) So the terms father and mother apply to uh, and children apply to authority and the relationship of authority from one to another. Uh, if you recall this, the explanation to the fourth commandment in the small catechism, we should fear and love God so that it, we do not despise or anger our parents. Or Pardon me? Or masters. Or masters. Ooh. The, the translation that I learned, which was the 86 translation, the new one's not The 86 one, I think, was the last of the good ones. (laughs) But anyway. Shoot, now I'm on record saying that. Well, whatever. You know, I'll stand stand by it. Um, And other authorities. Despise and anger our parents and other authorities. Master is good. I think they probably changed master because master has connotations. of slavery. Right, we don't like to talk about that. Um, if only the Bible were more comfortable. By the way, that's the problem with so many of the bad translations, is not that there wasn't good scholarship that was put into them, but that they tried to make it comfortable. And guess what? The Bible's not comfortable, and you already should know that going into it. Why? Because we have sinful nature. Because you have a sinful nature, and what's the Bible all about? Condemning sin. (laughs) So, hey, listen, if you're a sinner, you're going to hate the Bible. If you don't want to forgive people, you are going to hate the Bible. If you want to live life the way you want to live it and be the boss of your own self, well, sorry, you're going to hate the Bible. If that's really what you want, maybe the Bible isn't the book for you. Maybe Christianity is not the religion for you because Christianity is the religion where your thoughts and opinions are not the things that govern anything here. But I think we should, I don't care. <laughs> I mean, even the pastor doesn't ha- get to say, well, oh, what I think, blah, 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 because the Lord says to him, I don't care. Do your job, and here's how to do your job, and here's what you're supposed to be doing. You say, oh, okay. So, not about opinions. Other authorities or masters. Just as a little aside. You know, yes. Oh, my goodness. Being politically correct just kind of ruins everything. It is. It's too, so hard. And you want to know what? It doesn't matter how hard you try to be politically correct, you're still going to find something that you did wrong, and they're still going to eat you up. So I say, why bother? Call a spade a spade. <laughs> just, you know. I
2: can't
0: use that word either. Spade? You can't use spade anymore? Oh, well, look at that! I guess I'm behind the times. No, I didn't know. It all moves so quickly. I just stopped paying attention to any of it. Uh, so here's a couple, here's a couple uh, passages here from the Large Catechism. In this commandment, belongs a further statement about all kinds of obedience to persons in authority. Who have to command and to govern, for all authority flows and is born from the authority of parents. So all whom we call masters are in the place of parents and must get their power and authority to govern from them." Now we already talked about this, all authority comes from parental authority, any authority that anybody has in the government, in the school, in the, the, the office, the workplace, all of that comes from parental authority. Okay? Parental authority is the highest authority. Why? Because the most fundamental, the, the fundamental unit in the building block in society is the family. family. Or you can say the household too. Okay. This is this is my problem with women's suffrage. And I'm I'm not trying to be unpopular here. I don't have a problem with women voting, but the problem is the women's suffrage movement was about a vote for the individual, not a vote for the household. So it was never about anybody with these particular chromosomes and these particular genitalia has to be scanned and weeded out. Why? Well, because they're all going to vote for Hillary. That was a joke. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) I don't share political opinions here, remember? That was just a joke. Because women are emotional, so we shouldn't let them vote. Because they're all
1: going to be liberals.
0: Well, that's stupid. OK. Um, I said this to somebody. I was talking with Morris after Mattins one day. And he said something about women in the workplace often being better than men because they're more organized. And, uh, and uh, they, they do things a certain way, and men don't do things that way. Obviously, men and women are very different and women, have a, women are often very more uh, organized. And I said, I think that that is probably one really good argument for not ordaining them. And you say, why? If they're better than men, why wouldn't we ordain them? Well, because they're better than men. Because the Lord wants to make his strength manifest in weakness and incompetence, not in strength. Okay, but, so the, the problem with the women's suffrage movement as it was presented, which is the same problem with so many of, of these wa- different waves of feminism is, what's it about? It isn't about the vote, actually. Women's suffrage was not about the vote. It was about the individual. And the, the philosophy of the structure of society and how it is built changed. And again, I don't have a problem with a woman who wants to vote, but the problem is when you take that route, then you begin to break down society into individuals and not households, but the family is supposed to be the fundamental thing. So the the whole process up until then was, it was a vote for a household. And the idea was, that a husband and a wife cast the same vote together because a husband and a wife in the same household are supposed to talk to each other and figure things out and be smart. And by the way, just because the man was the one that cast the the vote doesn't mean that the woman wasn't voting. I've seen a whole lot of husbands, and guess what? A whole lot of husbands are on a leash, okay? So let's be real. Putting the thing in the box or drawing your with your little marker on it doesn't necessarily mean that you're the one casting the vote, okay? So that's, again, th- there, are, there are so many elements to that women's suffrage movement, but the big one was we want to be individuals. We don't want to be part of this group anymore. We want to be an individual. We want to we break down the unit of society to the people, not the groups, and the problem is... then. All society breaks down, feminism and, and uh, so many of these other modern movements, they're breaking down some of these fundamental building blocks. And it's like you've turned a brick into a pile of sand, but then you still want to, because the brick is just a whole bunch of sand, so then we'll break each little individual grain out of that brick, and then you've got a pile of sand, and then you say, now build me a pyramid with all of these little grains of sand. I'm sorry, but it doesn't work. You have to have something cohesive to build on in society. You should read Chesterton on this. Chesterton was a huge proponent in the early 1900s about the family as the unit of society, which has nothing to do with who gets to cast a ballot. It's in how you look at society as a whole and what are the core elements of society. frankly, the individual is not the core element of society. It can't be. That leads to a breakdown because everything is about selfishness. And uh, so Chesterton has all these writings on the family. One of the great quotes that he says is there's nothing more extraordinary in this world than an ordinary man and an ordinary woman who have an ordinary wedding and who raise ordinary children in an ordinary home. That is the most extraordinary thing in this whole world because the whole world is fighting against that. Also, men are called fathers in the scriptures who perform the functions of a father and have a paternal heart toward their subordinates. From antiquity, the Romans and other nations called the masters and mistresses of the household house fathers and house mothers. They called their national rulers and overlords fathers of the entire country. This is a great shame to us who would be Christians because we do not, oh, excuse me, there's a typo, we do not give them the same title or at least do not value and honor them as fathers. We don't, we don't think about them as fathers or mothers anymore. Who is your governor? Just the governor. What do you think about him? Hate his guts. Okay. Well, who is your president? Not my president. Well, what do you think about him? Hate his guts. Okay, well, then that's a problem, though, because then you're not giving honor. And I'm not gonna be the one to say that all of the breakdown in our country is not because we have ceased to give honor to the people who are to be holding honor. Remember, that was one of the points from last week was that one of the greatest works of the Christian faith that you can perform is to give honor to father and mother which extends to other authorities and that your life goes better when you actually give honor and that things start to break down when you don't. Um, by the way, back to this women's suffrage issue, here's one of my, here's, here's another problem that I see. When it's, an indiv- when it's just the individual, then you have husbands and wives who joke with each other like this. Well, blah, 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 he votes for Trump and blah, 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 I vote for Jill Stein and uh, we, we just cancel each other out. <laughs> What's the problem with that? <clears throat> we'll just cancel each other out. They're not speaking. As one. They're not speaking. They're not speaking to each other. They're not speaking as one voice. The one flesh has two mouths. Again, I don't care if you're a woman and you want to cast a ballot. Fine, go cast your ballot. But if you're a married woman and you live in a household, you know, talk to your husband. sit down over the dinner table. Sit down over the coffee table. Talk to each other. Be one flesh. Actually, if you disagree on stuff, talk to each other and figure out how you can work to agree. If you're a husband, don't be bullheaded. If you're a wife, don't be an egg. Don't stop talking to your husband. Come on, be a husband and be a wife. Yes, my wife. (laughs) Yes, that's right. The family is the individual's defense against the state. If the state ever turns on you, the family is the shield that stands in your way. But if you want to be an individual, you want to be just a bunch of little people, well guess what? Then you have nothing. You have absolutely nothing. The the household, the family the 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 the, the familial unit is of such an inestimable importance and value. Um, This is great comfort, by the way. We're going to end here. Um, People who are uh, uh, a married couple who are barren. And it doesn't matter if it's the wife or the the husband. That doesn't matter. If a a couple can't have children, then the couple is barren because it's one flesh. It's never a matter of blame, although people tend to feel guilty. It's my fault we can't have children. My womb is barren or my my boys aren't strong swimmers, whatever. Whatever. You know, that's it's on me that we don't have children. Well, it isn't. You're, you're there together, you're a couple together. But St. John Chrysostom wrote a lot of letters of pastoral counsel to, Barrett, to the people who were barren or people who had had one child and then that child had died and then they had no more children left. And they say, well, come on, God, what's going on? And he says... Just because you don't have flesh and blood children does not mean you are not fathers and mothers. But we're often so short-sighted that when we see father and mother, the only thing that we think about is my own children. Hey, do you teach Sunday school? Then guess what? You're a mother or a father. Do you have nieces and nephews? Then you are a mother and a father. Now listen, I know it's not the same to hold somebody else's baby versus holding your own. I know that that's not the same, but... The Lord still says, you can still be a mother and still be a father, even if you don't have your own flesh and blood children. There are all these other ways, because the fourth commandment's about it. House fathers, house mothers. All of these children. So when you start taking a step back, what does it really mean to be father and mother, and start defining the terms in the way that the fourth commandment defines them, your life is a lot less limited. Actually, your life is much more free in the gospel. Okay, any quick, 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 quick questions? Good, I love you. Let's see you at the altar.